You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Marianne Williamson. Marianne is an internationally acclaimed spiritual author and lecturer. Six of her 11 published books have been New York Times bestsellers. Four of those have been number one. The mega bestseller, A Return to Love, contains the famous paragraph beginning, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. The depth of this sentiment is staggering, especially for women. Marianne founded Project Angel Food, a Meals on Wheels program that serves homebound people with AIDS in the Los Angeles area. She also co-founded the Peace Alliance, and she serves on the board of directors of the Results Organization, working to end the worst ravages of hunger and poverty throughout the world. Her weekly lectures in New York City are available via live stream on her website, marianne.com, where you also find loads of other amazing content to radically transform your life. And the great news, Marianne will be a featured presenter at the 2016 Emerging Women Live event in San Francisco, October 13th to the 16th in 2016 this year. And Marianne's most recent book, Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. She argues that we, as a culture and as individuals, have learned to avoid facing pain. And by doing so, we are neglecting the spiritual work of healing. In this episode, Marianne and I spoke about the age we are living in, the age of the choir. How depression is addressed in our culture and the transformative power of the dark night of the soul. The barrage of meaninglessness that literally bruises the spirit occurring in our world today. And how it is essential to heal the spirit on our journey towards wholeness. How miracles are actually thoughts, and how to navigate our emotions. And finally, forgiveness, and how forgiveness can be a bridge between our inner work and what we create in the world. After we recorded this podcast, Marianne wanted me to pass along the important message to anybody taking medication for depression, mental illness, or other pain. Marianne strongly recommends that should you desire to alter your medication or get off them altogether, that you do so under the strict supervision and consultation of your doctor. Here is my conversation, Tears to Triumph, with the fabulous torchbearer of spirituality, Marianne Williamson. Okay, welcome, Miss Marianne Williamson. Very excited to have you on the show. Thank you so oh, much. Thank for your you time. so much. Yes. So I feel that it's not an understatement to say that you are an icon. You're an icon for women, for transformation, for consciousness in our world today. And and it's just such an honor to be here with you. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. It feels like a lot to live up to, but I, I really appreciate the spirit with which you say that. And um, it's really nice to talk to you, too. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Well, you know, it's interesting because <clears throat> I don't use that word lightly, and I feel like with the passing of Maya Angelou, you know, a year and a half ago, and just it, it just sort of feels like 
that the the shift is is moving away from single people doing amazing work and creating big big change and the pressure is turning towards you know sort of the citizen or the collective to pick up this consciousness and and exponentially grow it and so i feel like when we have the opportunity to to really dig in with a wisdom holder, a lineage holder, a torchbearer in this world, then I, I think it's just such a privilege, and I'm very excited to dig into your work. Well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you, and I think you point to something very significant in terms of this moment in time. We're not living, in terms of, of transformation, socially, spiritually, politically, and so forth, there are always the torchbearers, which usually have to do with somebody who's simply been around longer and, you know, because of age and started the journey earlier. Mm-hmm. But also, we're not living at a time that's an age of the soloist. Mm-hmm. We're living at a time that's the age of the choir, much like you just said. Um, sometimes in history, it is more about soloists who who sing a certain note. And now so many notes have been sung. So many of us have read the same book. So many of us have listened to the same tapes. That the zeitgeist does seem to be more about a kind of collective, mm-hmm. uh, a collective movement forward, a real sense of, of social and spiritual uh, revolution um, that really is not contained by just one person. It's never contained by just one person. But today particularly, there is a sense of collective movement. So I agree with you about that. Yeah, and it's so interesting that we're talking about your new book coming out and uh, Tears to Triumph and the path of depression and sadness as a gateway for more of a personal soul connection and understanding and personal transformation, which has always seemed like a solo journey. It feels like depression's very isolated and you know, a lot of moving out of that feels like, you know, can be very myopic in terms of thinking and, and almost like digging ourselves out of a a hole by with our fingernails. And yet you make points throughout your book, um, very strongly. And I know the Course of Miracles emphasizes relationship and, and working on those pains of separation. So I'm curious to see and I know this is sort of, we're going to weave this theme throughout our discussion here, but how that space of we and the collective plays out when one is dealing with such a, you know, a strong, painful feeling that feels very isolating. Well, you, you point once again to something very significant. From modern psychotherapy has been about, as you said, one person sitting there talking to the therapist. And since it's only one person, unless you're in a group therapy situation, there there has developed this sense that depression is only about the individual because the pain is felt, of course, by the individual. Mm-hmm. But this 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 sets up certain challenges. First of all, the last thing you need to be doing when you're sad is isolating. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we move into happiness is through connecting to other people. So it's important that we bring that central point in. Uh, to the mind of the person who is suffering, who is sad. But also the the realization that so much of the depression, so much of the sadness is in fact collective. And there's a reason for that. The reason being that we have predicated our civilization, the entirety of modern civilization is predicated on principles which from a spiritual perspective are depressing. Mm. 
because the mind view, the world view that dominates our society is one that posits us as separate from each other. Mm-hmm. It posits a world in which there is so, only so much uh, uh, to, good to go around, abundance to go around, a world of scarcity in which we basically have to compete with each other rather than share with each other in order to get ahead. Both of those things are contrary to our spiritual nature. Our spiritual nature knows our oneness with one another. Our spiritual nature already knows our oneness with the universe, our oneness with the earth, our oneness with the creative source. And so the spirit feels homeless. The spirit feels alien in a, in a world in which the spirit itself is denied and the essentials of the spirit are denied. The body is deemed real here. And the notion of spirit is this kind of not always deemed fantasy, but even when not deemed fantasy, the needs of the spirit are too often marginalized and trivialized in our society. Mm -hmm. The psyche pays a price for this. That's what psychic pain is. Your spirit isn't uncreated just because you ignore it. And the needs of the spirit don't go away just because they're not recognized. The needs of the spirit are need for alignment with love, with forgiveness, with mercy, with compassion, with community, with relationship, with concern for the whole, with service, and with a sense of something bigger than ourselves. So the psyche is in pain. You can only deny that, that important aspect of yourself for so long before your psyche starts to scream out in pain. And, and, and when you look at these things from a spiritual perspective, your spirit isn't just an quote-unquote important aspect of yourself. It is the truest aspect of yourself. So that psychic pain is like physical pain. It's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. You, it's not a disorder. The mm-hmm. world is disordered. Mm-hmm. You don't have a disorder. The world is disordered. So when you go through things that are painful for the spirit, some of which are just the normal human experiences of life, uh, grief, uh, heartache, you lost someone to death, you went through a bitter divorce, you, you went bankrupt, you lost a job you loved, you're in an argument with someone. This stuff is painful, but it's not a mental illness. It's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. The world in which we live is disordered because it is so spiritually disconnected. So going through the pain of working through all this, realigning yourself, this is the spiritual journey. It's not a, it's, it's not a, a, a mental illness or a disorder. This is something, and for you to numb it, that psychic pain would be like saying, I have a broken leg, and instead of resetting my leg, I'm going to just take morphine. Right. You can't just numb the pain. You have to reset the, the bone, and in the case of the psyche, you have to reset your thinking. And that's what the book is about. How do we have to reset our thinking? And resetting our thinking is the same thing as saying, how do we self, self-actualize? How do we become enlightened? Those are all the same thing. Before we go into that, God, I have so many questions there, but on this epidemic <laughs> of depression, which you had just touched on, I, I want to kind of carve out, why do you think there is more depression among women. I mean, I, I guess the statistic I've heard is twice as many women are being diagnosed with depression as men. <clears throat> well, a couple of things are, are relevant here. First of all, the highest suicide spike right now is among middle-aged men. Mm. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, as you probably know already from what you've read, I really take issue with the whole business of diagnosed Yes. Uh, there is no blood test for depression. It's a questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um, the third issue is 
women are sensitive, but this is an important issue in the book as well. The fact that we are depressed means it's for a reason. We get that something is wrong. You know, I tell a story in the book about a troop of chimpanzees where a group of anthropologists went to a, uh, to Africa and there was a chimpanzee troop and uh, some of the chimps displayed behavior that you could call depressed. They didn't eat with the rest of the chimps. They didn't sleep with the rest of the chimps. They didn't play with the rest of the chimps. And so these anthropologists were wondering what the effect on the troop would be if they took the, de- the so-called depressed chimps and they separated them. They took them away for six months. They did that. And then they came back to check in six months what the effect would be on the quote-unquote normal population of chimpanzees after these depressed chimps had been taken away, small percentage of of the troop, which was the depressed chimps had been taken away for about six months. Mm -hmm. And when they came back, what they found was that the entire chimpanzee troop was dead. And what they surmised, what they concluded, was that the depressed chimps were the early warning system. Mm. They were depressed because they were the ones sensitive enough to know that elephants were coming, or lions were coming, or tigers were coming, or snakes were coming, or storm clouds were coming, or earthquakes were coming, or whatever, which then the other chimps saw as a warning. And so I think the fact that so many women are depressed is because we know that the environment we're living in is not healthy for our children. It's not healthy emotionally. It's not healthy psychologically. It's not healthy physically. We're depressed, in other words, for good reason. It's not that we have a quote-unquote problem with depression. It's that the world and the way we are organizing ourselves has a problem. And women, because we are sensitive, are registering it. We're like the canaries in a coal mine, but we, you look at the dead canaries and you figure that there's nothing wrong with the coal mine, there's wrong with, something wrong with the canaries. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so what you've got here is basically a technology to take those warning signals and, as you, you put, like make an <clears throat> alchemy of that, of personal transformation, and, and then you know, ultimately action in the world, which is what I love about your work is that it well, always results you. in action. Well, I appreciate that. I, now, the technology is not my own. The technology and what I try to bring forth in the book is that that technology is inherent in all the great religious and spiritual systems of the world. Mm-hmm. Buddha yes. is the one who designed the technology. Mm-hmm. Buddha with the Ten Commandments and the, the great story of the Exodus, the inherent in that is the technology. The alignment with Christ, the meaning of the suffering on the cross and the resurrection, there's your technology. All the great, and that, those are only three of, of obviously many great spiritual philosophical systems on the planet Hmm. we you know one of the things that i i talk about in the book is how and and once again just concentrating on these three but it's true of all of them in the story of buddha in the story of moses in the exodus in the story of christ the issue of human suffering is a central theme the whole message of buddha is that life is suffering Moses was sent by God to deliver the Israelites from their suffering as slaves under Pharaoh. And, of course, Jesus suffered on the cross. So the great spiritual traditions speak to the issue of human suffering and then speak to the fact that God then shows his hand. So the issue is not that that Buddha saw suffering, the issue and realized that life is suffering. The issue is that then he 
himself became enlightened under the Bodhi tree and developed a way for other people to become enlightened as well. The issue isn't just that the Israelites suffered, but that God led them through Moses to the promised land. The issue isn't just that Jesus suffered on the cross, but that then he rose. And that's why any treatment of human depression that does not include a spiritual element is by, de by definition falls short of, uh, of the solution. And that is the problem I have with the fact that a medical model has, been, has, has, has not only been imprinted on this a phenomenon of depression, but it has absconded with it. Mm -hmm. You know, this pharmaceutical, uh, you know, I won't go so far as to call it a scam because I think that pharmaceuticals, biomedical research has a great role to play, including in many serious mental illnesses. But a lot of what's called depression today is arguably within the spectrum of normal human suffering. There's no need to pathologize that. There's no need to call the grief of after your, uh, uh, your parents died um, a, a, a disease. And then there, there's all this business about a chemical imbalance. Well, if you want to talk about brain chemistry change, when you meditate, your brain chemistry changes. When you pray, brain chemistry changes. So the idea that... that um, uh, that the depression is a disease that is different from normal human suffering. I just think that that has become a platitude that is just used as this blanket response to all issue of deep human suffering. If you even question it, too often you're called insensitive uh, to the issue of mental illness. I'm certainly not insensitive to the issue of real mental illness, but pharmaceuticals today are being prescribed far too easily and to people who do not have serious mental illness. I'll give you an example of something, and this is just anecdotal, but I hear these kinds of stories all the time. I, I know a gentleman whose son has been diagnosed with, with bipolar. Okay, now, I, when you, you talk about pharmaceutical, uh, psychotherapeutic drugs, when bipolar, schizophrenia, I'm not going there. That's not my business. That's not my lane. But this young man was told when he was diagnosed with bipolar that the, the antidepressant he had been given was the worst thing he could take for bipolar. Where had he gotten the antidepressant? He had gone to an urgent care thing one night just one night to an, a visit to an urgent care center and they had handed him an antidepressant. And Abilify, which is the largest uh, selling drug in America today, is an antipsychotic. We are giving antipsychotics. We are giving uh, antidepressants and even antipsychotics to people who have not been diagnosed with serious mental illness. And then to cap all that off, the FDA itself now warns and has for years, but this doesn't seem to have gotten out there. For people 25 years old and younger, antidepressants can increase, not decrease, but increase the incidence of suicide. Mm -hmm. And we have so many young people today not only having been prescribed um, antidepressants, taking them like candy, and told in far too many cases to expect to be on these for the rest of your life. Yeah. And also, let me just cap that off with the fact that people say, well, some people need these antidepressants to avoid suicide. But if you look at how the suicide rates have risen, 
They've written, they've written, as, as, you know, we, yes, we have a rise in antidepressant use. We also have a rise in suicide. So where do we get that these antidepressants are keeping people from, from committing mm-hmm. suicide, especially among the young people? I think this is just a huge issue and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I am a mother myself, um, and it's just, uh, I, I'm, I'm devastated by how many of these young people uh, have been given these dangerous drugs when, in too many cases, when I hear their stories, I'm like, the 20s are hard. Yeah. The 20s are hard. It's not a mental illness. It's a hard time in your life. It's spiritually called the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. And you yourself in the book talk a little bit about how your career started, which was, you know, funny because I was going to ask you that. Our audiences may not all be familiar with your work, but, you know, this was how you started being the great Marianne Williamson that you are now was through depression. Can you tell us, give us a little frame for that so we can yeah, better understand I, it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's significant, actually. I had what would commonly be called a nervous breakdown. Mm. Um, and during that time, because of a, a tragedy that occurred in my life, and I felt as though my skull exploded. Um, at that time, I went to see a psychiatrist, <clears throat> who I still think of as having saved my life. And I remember when he, now this was a long time ago, and he suggested uh, uh, an antidepressant. I don't even know what it was called then. I don't know if it was called an antidepressant, because this would have been like around 1980. Mm-hmm. And I remember throwing the pills at, uh, back at him and saying, if I want to do drugs, I have much better ones than these. Um, and I felt during that year that my skull exploded. Mm-hmm. I felt like my skull, my brain was like a, a an ancient vase and it had been exploded into gazillion pieces. And very slowly it came back together. It came back together because of prayer. It came back to because of of um, uh, meditation. It came back in and, and because of the psychiatrist. I mean, he was very, like I said, he he was he was it was an extraordinary thing. My mother had said to me, um, my she came into me and she said, um, my friend who her friend that's a psychologist says to me that she thinks you're in trouble. And that was because I couldn't stop crying. And I said, yeah, mm. with a very young woman. I wasn't that, I was a young woman at the time. I was in my 20s. And my mm-hmm. mother said, so she says you should see somebody. And I said, um, I think that would be great. I, I knew I needed help. And she said, um, but I don't want to just crazy stuff. I, I, I want a psychiatrist. It's got to be an ND psychiatrist. And I said, fine. You know, I just wanted help. And I went in to see this man, and I sat down and I said, I want you to know I'm a student of a set of books called A Course in Miracles, and if you're going to put that down and make fun of it and tell me I need to stop that stuff, then this is not going to work. And he said to me, I just completed the workbook. Oh, wow. And the the fact that this was in 1980, Mm -hmm. and it was an MD psychiatrist who, who did The Course in Miracles, who I just happened to meet and, you know, who happened to be present and the one that we were sent to in Houston, Texas. I mean, it was just couldn't be more, you know, planned from some otherworldly source. My, my point about this is that his psychotherapeutic 
treatment of me which did not include chemicals, was very respectful of my spiritual journey mm. and aligned, you know, the Course in Miracles says psychotherapy and religion at their peak are the same thing. Hmm. And this was a dark night of my soul. And it was definitely a, a psychological and emotional crisis. But he never made me feel I was the victim of a condition. He never put a label. It was like the difference between having the flu and putting the flu after your name as something that would be with you for the rest of your life. That's why I have a problem with some of these people who are told expect to be on these drugs for the rest of your life. Hmm. Now, as painful as that period, that dark night of the soul was in my life, I came out the other side of that with some talents and abilities I had not had before. It felt as though when my skull came back together, there, were, there was something there that had not been there before. And after that, I could get up and talk in some way. And I once read, I, I don't think it was a book, I think it was a magazine article, about people who had been through traumas. And one I remember was Deborah Winger, the actress. Mm. I think I'm correct about this. I think it was Deborah Winger. That she, her head had been hit by a horse. She fell off a horse. And I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it was her. It was a well-known actress. And she was in a coma. And she came out and said, I'm, I'm going to be an actress. So there are all kinds of mysterious situations where people go through deep crises and come out on the other side with their deepest gifts. And yet today, people are being made to feel, if you're unhappy, there's something wrong. Not only that there's something wrong, and my point is it's not that something's wrong. It's a season of life. We have deep, dark nights of the soul, but they're followed by mourning. We have deep, painful winters, but winters have their own beauty, and they're followed by spring. And what we are doing now is acting like there's something wrong with this, mm -hmm. and you, you must take a medicine, and, and, and just the whole idea of, of not allowing ourselves to know that if someone you love just died, if you just got a, went through a painful divorce, if you lost a, a job, this is called grief. And grief is part of the psychic immune system. The psyche has an immune system, just like the body does. We would not have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, some people claim more, without the ability to take a hit. You know, the psych catastrophe didn't just start. Heartbreak <laughs> right. didn't just start. You know, it's like all these young right. girls now, and this is this back to the pharmaceutical element. There are all these young girls today who are taking birth control pills years before they're sexually active. Mm -hmm. and, and the parents are being told that they need this to quote-unquote regulate their hormones. Well, I would like to point out that nature has been regulating women's hormones for hundreds of thousands of years mm -hmm. before Big Pharma came along. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like we've created a culture that doesn't want to feel any pain, and yet right. the only way to truly be happy is to live a life of meaning. That's so right. that's the the whole, and that's going to involve some pain, right? Yeah. Well, it ha Well, I I believe you, and I I'm that's your premise here, and that has been my experience, <laughs> unfortunately. 
or fortunately. I mean, I just don't know how we can have meaning without feeling sadness and the full range of the human emotions. And particularly, as I said before, because so much of the world today is predicated on ultimately meaningless stimulus. You know, you're bombarded by meaninglessness all day on television, on the computer, uh, and our media. It's just this barrage of meaninglessness. And the soul is hurt by this. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from my apartment, and I have the great good fortune of living on this over this beautiful green quad at a, at a seminary. And what, what I'm looking at are the stained glass windows from the church and all these beautiful trees mm. and all this grass, and I just feel my soul drinking it in. Mm-hmm. Just drinking it in. The soul needs nature. The soul needs the body, the soul, the brain. We were hardwired. We've been this for thousands of years for nature, for beauty, for sunsets, for sunrise, for light, for, for, for the darkness of night. Mm-hmm. And right now we are just being bombarded by things that literally bruise the spirit. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why we're depressed and we're told, well, here, there's something wrong with you. You need medication. Not all the time told we need right. medication, but are at least told that there might be something wrong with us that we feel this mm-hmm. way. And when sometimes... The best thing, the healthiest thing you can say about a person who is depressed at times like these is that, is that they're upset by it. Because if you're living at a time like this and you're not upset by what's happening on the planet, I don't think you're looking mm-hmm. what we're doing to the environment and so forth. You talk about changing our mental filters, and I love the fact that I finally, I've, I've not heard this before, but you said that miracles are thoughts. So... Talk to us about how changing our mind states can actually navigate some of these painful emotions. I'm sorry, did you say miracles are stopped? Was thoughts. Miracles are oh, thoughts. thoughts. That thoughts. was a... Re- sorry, that okay. was a- yeah. Right. Wow. Well, that, of course. Right. The Course in Miracles says that a miracle is a shift in perception hmm. from fear to love. Now, the idea here, which many of us are now familiar with, is the idea that thought is the causal level of our experience. Thought is cause and our experience is effect. Everything we experience in the world is the product of a think of a thought. So sometimes it's our thought, sometimes it's somebody else's thought, but even if, it, if a negative um, effect came from somebody else's thought, the power of our own thought is that we can stand within the experience in a way to transform our experience of that experience. So taking responsibility for the nature of our thoughts is the deepest level of taking responsibility for our lives. Mm -hmm. And God himself won't change the effect if we're not willing to change on the level of cause because that would be a violation of free will. And the Course in Miracles says that every thought creates form on some level. Now, a miracle is a thought of love. And the Course in Miracles says miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. When I'm thinking a thought of love, I'm thinking a thought of the divine. My mind in that moment is aligned with God's thinking. And this creates what the Course in Miracles calls an intercession on behalf of our holiness or our whole mind from a thought system beyond the thought system of fear that dominates the planet. So 
So if I stand on, in this world within a worldly situation, but I think thoughts of love, that transforms not only my thinking, but the whole situation, because it brings forth a shift on the level of effect. Now, similarly, if I refuse to open my heart, I refuse to forgive, if I choose to blame instead of bless, if I choose to close my heart instead of open it, if I choose to, to criticize, to be negative, to, uh, to attack, to defend, then what I do is I deflect, I actually obstruct the miracle which would otherwise naturally occur. Mm. Mm. So every moment we are making a choice. We're either making the choice consciously or unconsciously whether to allow love to miraculously transform, guide and transform our lives or refuse divine love access to our minds and thus to our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I love this because I think oftentimes <clears throat> when we're in the space of using the mind or, you know, creating new neural pathways in the brain, which I love. I love all of that work, but the emotions don't seem to be part of that work. And you're really making a case of bringing the emotions and the mind work together in a way that seems to transcend. It seems like it's probably going to be a lot faster, but it's tricky because it feels hard to navigate the emotions. It's not as clear. It's not as scientific. So how do you... Well the most powerful way to navigate your emotions is to navigate your thoughts because emotions stem from our thoughts. I'll give you an example. Let's say a woman who is jealous and based on my own childhood experience, I feel, for instance, like, this is not me, by the way, um, that if my man um, or woman, if, I, if I'm gay, um, talks to someone else or has a good relationship with someone else, that there is less love for me mm. then that will be I will be in great pain but if my worldview is shifted to the realization that the more you allow the more you give the more there is and that if I will bless that obviously within boundaries of behavior but know that the that there's not some only certain numbers of pieces of the pie of love but rather realize that it's infinite then I, my, not just my thinking changes, my, my emotion changes and mm -hmm. I become open and I become happy that there's some other person in our lives. Mm. So the issue isn't just I'm in pain because my, uh, my partner has another friend. It's that I'm happy to be open and, and, and to welcome this friendship into both our lives. Now, obviously, if, if at that point the person, you know, there's, there's some kind of, you know, transgression of, of behavioral boundaries, that's different. But that the initial attitude is how wonderful because we're all here to love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you, you really also talk about forgiveness quite a bit as also a pathway to transform the pain into something that's a lot deeper. And I'm curious if you could flush that out a little bit more, because that's really hard for people who've been wronged. I mean, there's so much abuse. And so maybe a little bit more around that. How does one actually do that? The way the Course in Miracles talks about forgiveness is very different 
than the way we think of it based on its normal usage. Mm -hmm. Normally, forgiveness is presented as something where somebody did something terrible, but you're spiritual, so you will forgive them. The Course in Miracles points out that's that's not forgiveness, that's judgment. That's holier than thou. Mm -hmm. That's forgiveness that destroys both of us. Forgiveness, as the Course in Miracles describes it, is the realization that the true you is an innocent child of God and the true me is an innocent child of God. In the moment when I made my biggest mistakes, including hurting other people, I didn't wake up that morning and go, I think I'll be a jerk today. I woke up that morning and something happened during the day where based on my own childhood wounds, my own triggers, something happened in my interaction with you where I simply did not know how to express my love and get my needs met. The person who forgives me is simply the person who understands that. So if I have an argument with you or you hurt me in some way, the Course in Miracles says forgiveness is a selective remembering. Mm. Did you ever do anything right? Because the Course says my mind, my ego mind, the mind which is not the mind of love, is like a scavenger dog that will always be looking for evidence of your guilt. Because if I can focus on your guilt, because there's, on a spiritual level, only one of us here. What I think about anyone, I think of myself. So if I'm focused on your guilt, I, can't not, I cannot not feel guilty. And only if I'm willing to forgive you, i.e. know that you're an innocent child of God, and that I can base my knowledge and experience of you on who you are, not just what you did in a moment previous to this, then and only then can I be released from the burden of my own guilt and freed and delivered to a higher space in my own life. That does not mean I will necessarily be guided to ever have lunch with you again. It does not mean that I will necessarily be guided to live with you anymore or be married to you anymore for that reason. Mm -hmm. But even if I am guided to separate from you in terms of romantic attachment or, or marriage or something, if I have not forgiven you, then I will meet someone with your issue down the road mm -hmm. because it is an area where I cannot yet forgive and the universe is intentional that we self-actualize. The universe is intentional that we become enlightened beings. And so we go through lessons in our lives where we are constantly confronted with the challenge to open our hearts in an area that might not be easy for us to do that in. Now, the ego says, no, that's your issue, but really it's my issue if I can't love you through your issue. Once again, that does not mean I would continue to hire you, to work for you, to be married to you, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It means it's about where my mind goes and therefore where my emotions go, which means therefore where my life goes. Mm -hmm. You make a point in the beginning of the book to really talk about surrender, surrendering to God. Um, especially when you're in the throes of, of the pain. And it feels a bit like forgiveness is a form of surrender. And then, but there's also work to be done. It's not that we just simply surrender. I mean, we, we need to figure out the wisdom lessons that we're getting. And what is that balance between surrender and the actual practice of, of making sure <clears throat> that we've gotten the gifts that we are meant to give from our pain? I, I wouldn't call it a balance. Mm -hmm. any more than when you breathe there's an inhale and there's an exhale mm. I don't think there's a balance between night and day 
it's not a balance between yin and yang. It's mm. a relationship between the two. Mm. And it has to do with the fact that some of the work is internal. It's owning your own mistake and thinking about that deeply. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, I might have to, for instance, sit and think about the fact that, all right, I'm focused on his guilt, but what was my part? Mm -hmm. And then realizing, well, it wasn't just what he did, it's what I did to sabotage the relationship. A lot of that is done when you're sitting there. You're mm -hmm. just sitting in a room alone. You know, Pascal, Blaise Pascal said most of man's problems come from, most of the problems in the world stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Some of the most important work is just when you've meditated, you've prayed, you're reflecting. We don't have enough quiet in our society today. Yeah. And so now after that, there may or may not be, um, I had a situation with someone who very much hurt me. And um, I was really hurt professionally by what this person did. In mm -hmm. all the time I had to spend thinking about it and forgiving him, um, I had to realize, well, Mary, and you weren't perfect either. And we, you know, we go, I remember when I was a child and my mother would come home and my brother and my sister and I were, she started it, she started it. Kids do that. We tend to do that with God. Well, he did it first. And I had to apologize to this person that had hurt me. But in order to heal, I had to apologize for my part. Mm. And it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. Right? But I wasn't going to be able to heal. So I had to think through all that. And I knew that I was not going to be free um, in that situation. It had to do with my uh, congressional campaign. There was a lot to forgive myself and others for. Wow. And yet, there was no way... I was going to emerge from that situation better rather than bitter, mm -hmm. victorious rather than victim, in triumph rather than in tears, unless I did the inner work. And it, let me tell you, it was, a, it was a depressing period. It was a very painful period. And I, that, that period very much, even though I don't go into the specifics of that in the book, that was, that was really the, the, the material for this book. And what I had to go through in order to emerge from that into a better place. And the universe is, the universe is a perfect ecosystem. It will use anything. Yeah. But I, you, you have to do that inner work of forgiving yourself and forgiving others. So when you say, what is the outer? The outer um, has to do at a certain uh, time. It one of the things I talk about is the Buddha's Eightfold Path, right speech. Uh, how you speak about a situation that has occurred. Um, I remember after my congressional campaign when I was lecturing, I knew, that, I knew the public was watching, and, and I knew that it would only hurt me, it would hurt them, because your responsibility is to demonstrate. People didn't hear me talk negatively. Um, people, I think, you know, it was very interesting after I lost that election. People were very kind I'd be walking down the street, oh, I'm so sorry you lost, I voted for you. People were very, very kind. Yeah. But after a period of time, people registered and I could see, you could just see it in people's eyes, you know, some relief. Um, I, was, I was moving on. Because what happens when you're very sad and you're in grief about something, yeah. people really want to be there for you. But if you hold on to it too long, it's kind of repelling. So when you yeah. say what's the inner work and what's the outer work, it begins with inner work. But there is outer work to do, too, that you don't, you don't give your victim story all the time. 
people don't hear you talk bitterly. You know, it's like, let's say you went through a bitter divorce. We see this all the time. Oh, yes. You, somebody went through a bitter divorce. Well, yep. people have a lot of compassion for that. But if six months later they hear the person talking really bitterly and saying awful things about their ex, it turns people off a little bit. Yeah. So it's inner work first, but it has outer manifestation. How you speak, if you need to apologize to someone, how you have to be different. If the inner work in a heartbreak in a relationship, I've never seen a relationship where the issue was all only one person's stuff. So yeah. even if somebody left you, you know the inner work during that time, and it is a dark night of the soul, it's not a medical condition, is it will come up for you what was your part. And sometimes, and I've been there, I'll spend months on what his issues were before I can <laughs> really allow myself to see. Okay, are you ready to look at yours? Well, I'm are happy to hear yours? that because it allows, because you're a bit of a beast. I mean, you have a huge amount of capacity for, I mean, you just are moving mountains out there. So to hear that, you know, you spent a few months on it actually means like, okay, all right, so I can do this too, you know? Well, I think that's my point. Yeah. Is that we're human. I'm not yeah. an enlightened master. And I think that that's the point of this book. This is yeah. part of the journey to enlightenment. Yeah. Depression is not a symptom that something's wrong. Sometimes depression means that you're in the thick of it. You're, it's a growth period. It's a fever. Sometimes fever has to occur in the body. You yeah. have to move through the fever. And what we call depression is often a psychic fever. Yeah. And you have to burn through it. Well, and also to do what you did to run a campaign and to, I mean, you are paving the way for so many, you were at the very beginning of an evolution revolution that is happening with women's, not just in politics, but all over. And so you did that for humankind. Um, well, thank you. I, I think that that's another issue here. If you're going to try, if you were to really go for it in life, you're going to take some risks. Yes. Yeah. And a risk means it may not pay off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I, I have a problem with telling everybody you have this condition is people will be afraid to really go for it in life. Yeah. Don't be afraid of the fact that this might hurt. Nobody enters a love affair with a guarantee. Nobody enters a political election with a guarantee. Nobody enters into any situation of power and passion with a guarantee that this is going to work out the way you want. Just know that. And then you know what's the worst that could happen. Well, this might hurt for a while. Yeah. Or it's a personal situation or a professional situation. You know, the Course in Miracles says some of your greatest successes you've deemed to be failures and some of your greatest failures you've thought were success. The only real failure in life is something we fail to learn from. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the success was that relationship a success. It was a success if you learned from it. Mm -hmm. You grew from it. You're more prepared for love now. The, the, the campaign was a success in the sense that it did whatever it did do. You know, I remember Dennis Kucinich saying to me, every campaign has some success to it. So I think we, we, I, I, we want to live in a space where we go for it in life. And I certainly think in every, every relationship I've ever been in and every professional situation I've ever been in where I have made mistakes, where there has been some aspect of failure, has given me information and given me 
uh, schooling so that next time I go out there, not that I expect to go out there as a political candidate again, you know more. And so we, we really, that's that, once again, changing the whole context of sad times, painful times. Mm-hmm. It's the school of life. Mm-hmm. Not a bad thing. Well, it, it was such a gift just to reflect back once again to watch you take that risk, to cheer you on, to see the impact you're making out there in, in a world that desperately needs women, specifically in the political arena, and desperately needs consciousness. I mean, that's that's a whole other thing. It just can't be a gender thing. But I think we no, do, no, not at all. Right? I mean, absolutely. So I just thank you for that. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of many, many, many people out there that this is inspiring us, uh, not just women, but people to develop the resilience, to work the technology so that we can take these big leaps because that is going to be what's necessary in order to make the change that we need to make in the world. Well, I thank you for that. And I agree with you 100%. And it is something we're all doing, including yourself, um, I think we need more and more of a collaborative model. Um, we used to call it sisterhood uh, in the old days. We can call um, it sisterhood. That's right. And <laughs> that's I not think too old. We, absolutely. And we need to, um, and brotherhood at this point, too, yes. that we are really there. I think, you know, when we talked before about how, you know, if you're going to go for it in life, it's going to involve some risk. You people, anytime you're going, really going for it in life, what you need more than anything else is to know that there are people out there who have your back. Mm-hmm. And for us to, know, to really, be, really be conscious of people that we know who are taking big leaps and doing big things in their lives, how can we help? Yeah. Um, I felt that during my campaign. There were people who were so wonderful. Um, and I, my heart is imprinted with that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's how it's going to happen. That's how we're going to save this world, is that we're all going to just step it up in our, in our capacity to, to go for it and to, um, and to be there for each other and to know that, if, that it's part of the process. Sometimes we're going to stumble. Sometimes we're going to fall. Sometimes love affairs aren't going to work out. Sometimes people we love are going to die. Sometimes we're going to lose the job. Sometimes the, the project's not going to work, and you're going to be sad for a while. Yes, you might be depressed for a while. doesn't mean you're mentally ill. It means you're on the journey, and you will be even better because of having gone through this. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for your time. We're so looking forward to having more at Emerging Women Live in San Francisco in October. I look forward to it, and thank you so much, and all my very best to you and everything that you do. Thank you. Take care. Much love. Much love back. Bye.